Well, good morning. While you're still standing, if you would grab your Bible, open up to Psalm 62. If you don't have a print Bible, uh, that's okay. There are tons of hardback blue Bibles all throughout the room. We'd love for you to grab a Bible, open up to Psalm 62, and I'd ask that everybody have a copy of God's printed word open in front of them because what matters is what it says, not what I say. And I'm only trustworthy to the extent that I'm explaining what those words say. So open up, get a Bible. That that preached to somebody, right? All right, Psalm 62. If you're just joining us, we're going through a short series over the summer called Summer in the Psalms. Uh, So with that in mind, let's read God's word. Christian, hear God's word to you this morning in Psalm 62. For God alone, my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. How long will all of you attack a man to batter him like a leaning wall, a tottering fence? They only plan to thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence. For my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory, my mighty rock, my refuge is my God. Trust in him at all times, O people, pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are a delusion. In the balances, they go up. They are altogether lighter than air. Put no trust in extortion or set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. Once God has spoken, twice have I heard this, that power belongs to God and that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love. For you will render to a man according to his work. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. If you would be seated and keep your Bible open in front of you. Well, it was 50 years ago, uh, just a few days ago, 50 years, 1969. You don't have to raise your hand if you were alive back then. But 50 years ago in 1969, almost to the day, Apollo 11 blasted off the coast of Florida in a Saturn V rocket on a trajectory that would set it on a course to incredibly land the first humans on the moon. Uh, That journey would take them four days to reach the moon and then eventually for Neil Armstrong to utter some of the most famous words in history. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Uh, Friends, that morning 50 years ago on a sunny morning in Florida in 1969, right before Apollo 11 took off, the last intelligible words the astronauts heard from launch control were these, good luck and Godspeed. (laughs) A fascinating statement, don't you think, if you really break it down? Good luck and Godspeed. You know, uh, which is it then? Is it, is it focusing on luck or is it focusing on God's speed, God's timing, his blessing? You know, do we want luck or do we want God's blessing? You know, of course, as Christians on a sunny morning in beautiful Southern Oregon, uh, hopefully you're sensing the irony in that statement, right? Because we know profoundly that luck is really just a mere mirage, on the path set before us, right? We know that God is with us. Who needs luck when you have God blessing you, right? Uh, But if we're really honest with ourselves, right, when life is really hard, you know, in the face of low balances in your savings account, uh, when you get disheartening news from the doctor, uh, when recovery periods are taking much longer than projected, uh, when you're crawling out of the crater of 
the bomb of divorce, in the stress of work and poor managers? <laughs> Have you ever just settled for wishing for some good luck and that God would just sort of speed things up a bit? <laughs> you know, if that were our prayer, I think that'd be the more honest prayer, right? God, give me some luck. And if you would, you know, your speed, I could, you know, handle it if you sped it up just a little bit. <laughs> I mean, who here isn't waiting for something, waiting for graduation, waiting for your marriage, waiting for your career to finally take off, waiting to hear back from the doctor? You see, God's speed, his timing is actually really hard to catch. And so this morning, what I want to suggest to you is that together you and I sit underneath the teaching of a really wise old believer, uh, King David, who's got something to teach us, if we're willing, about God's speed, about his timing. And in fact, what David has come to and what David has realized and what we're supposed to learn from him is he's learned how to understand God's speed. He's even learned to enjoy God's timing. <laughs> and then, of course, uh, he trusts in God's timing. So that's what I want to do this morning. I want you to understand God's speed. I want you to trust it. And then I want you to actually get around to enjoying it if that seems possible. All right, so what do I mean by God's speed? Let's understand it. Look down at your uh, passage right in front of you. Look at Psalm 62 right in your lap. You know, what is God's timing? Uh, well, David begins this whole Psalm needing to catch God's timing, God's speed, right? So in verse one, he says, for God alone, my soul waits in silence. You know, what that means for David profoundly is David has come to a place in his life where he realizes that as much as he has power and he's a king and he has control, he really doesn't have that much control over his life. In fact, when it comes to the really big things, they're all out of his control. And so he's come to the place in his life where he realizes profoundly, even though he's got more money than anybody in Israel, that unless God is his helper and his refuge, he really doesn't have any hope, does he? Look at verse one. This is the most powerful man in the country speaking. For God alone, my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. Now, why in the world would David have to learn to be patient? Why would David, of all people, you know, talk about the great believers, right? Why would he have to learn to be patient and have to wait? <laughs> would have to struggle through patience? Uh, well, if you know David's life, you'll remember that David was anointed as king, right? He was chosen to be king at the age of 15, right? It's like every 15-year-old's dream, right? Why do I have to keep living with my parents and doing what you, I want to do what I want to do, right? Every 15-year-old's dream is realized in David. David, hey, 15-year-old, you are so precocious, you're so handsome, you're so smart, you're so great, you get to be king. But do you know at what age David actually became king? You know, after he was 15, a couple years later, he killed Goliath, which is pretty cool. You know, that would have looked great on his college application to the University of Bethlehem, and it did. Trust me, it looked so good. But actually, after he killed Goliath, the king at the time, Saul, said, hey, bro, you're so cool here, marry my daughter. And then, of course, Saul starts to get jealous of David. And Saul, the king, actually tries to kill David multiple times. And so David actually lives on the run for 10 years. He's living in caves and having to act crazy so people don't kill him. I mean, to put it in sort of your world experience, imagine getting into Harvard. Imagine getting into Yale or OHSU or whatever school you want. Imagine being 15 and bam, you get into the school. And then imagine because of political warfare and injustice, you're not able to enroll until you're 30. What kind of person do you think David was when he was 15? What kind of person do you think he was when he was 30? David has come to know, for God alone, I wait. I wait in silence. 
And you may think, well, you know, he endured 15 years of hardship, right? And then when he was 30, everything was fine. Well, you know, that's hardly the case. Uh, What you may also remember from David's life is when he was about 60, one of his sons, Absalom, the guy with the great hair and the Pantene, you know, commercials, (laughs) Absalom, his son, when David was 60, we got any 60-year-olds in the room hoping to coast through retirement? When David was 60, his son created a coup. David slept with all of David's concubines outside on the roof in Jerusalem so everybody could hear. He shamed his father, and his father had to run out of Jerusalem because Absalom, his son, had taken over the kingdom. Most commentators believe this is when David wrote Psalm 62, not as the 22-year-old having to learn to be patient and trust in God's timing, but the 60-year-old whose own son run him out of the throne, having to learn yet again, I've got to catch God's speed. I've got to trust his timing. For God alone, says David, I wait, I wait in silence. Listen to how David understands God. Listen to the appeals that David makes to God's character. Now look at verse two. He says, God is a rock, meaning he's a place of protection. God is his salvation, both spiritually and physically. He's his fortress. And then David says, I shall not be greatly shaken. Then he goes on in verse five. He repeats this all again. He says, God is my hope. He only is my rock, my salvation, my fortress. Verse seven, on God rests my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my refuge is God. Notice there in verse seven, Paul adds, or excuse me, David adds that word, my glory. What does David mean by that? Uh, You know, anyone here think they have a lot of glory? It's kind of a strange way of describing yourself. Uh, But glory back then was really more akin to reputation, right? What David is saying is he's saying, I'm having not only to trust my physical life and my soul's salvation, but my own reputation to God because I cannot defend it. People can slander me. Uh, My son can disown me and kick me out of the house. And that is wildly embarrassing for David, um, among other things, but it's deeply shaming for David. And so what David says is, even when it comes to my reputation, what others think of me, I'm gonna have to trust that to the Lord. Pretty incredible when you start to unpack that, right? I mean, what are we but our reputation, right? You know, uh, Remember, what was it, Descartes that said, I think, therefore I am? Well, I think today in the world of social media, somebody, you know, eloquently put it, you know, I tweet, therefore I am, and I am liked, therefore I am, right? So much of our life is centered around maintaining some sort of projection of our reputation of who we are online, right? <laughs> we have a curated life online. I mean, think of, remember anyone here remember from Shakespeare back in the day, what Cassio says in Othello? Reputation, reputation reputation. Oh, I have lost my reputation. I have lost the immortal part of my soul. David has to trust his reputation even, his glory, what others think of him, to God. You know, I don't know about you, but when I think about God's timing and God's speed, it drives me bonkers. All I want to do is sort of get on YouTube and not think about it. (laughs) You know, in his, his new book, 12 Ways Your Phone is Changing You, talk about a terrifying title to a book, right? (laughs) 12 Ways Your Phone is Changing You. Tony Reinke uh, uh, states that we check our phones 4.3, every every 4.3 minutes that we're awake. So that means you've been tempted to already check your phone probably twice since I've started speaking. And you'll probably be tempted to check it at least twice more before I'm done. 
every 4.3 minutes you're checking your phone. Um, also, and don't worry, you're not alone, right? That's the whole point. About a billion people spend 53 minutes every day on Facebook. And Facebook only wants more, <laughs> right? We struggle to be patient, right? We want instantaneous news. We want instantaneous things. So this idea of waiting is really, really counterintuitive to the way that you and I think. Uh, but friends, what I want to suggest to you is actually waiting and learning patience uh, is profoundly one of the ways that you become human. <laughs> it is one of the ways you become who you were meant to be. Um, and I'm not just saying that because, you know, the Bible says that. I'm saying that because I think if you really look inwardly, you'll realize that this need for patience is actually one of the ways you become who you were meant to be. Uh, notice all throughout Psalm 62, look in your lap. Look at Psalm 62. In the face of all of this struggle and all of this hardship, David doesn't really focus on, God, what am I supposed to do? Notice he doesn't focus on, what am I supposed to do, God? What am I supposed to do? Uh, friends, one of the ways you know you're catching God's speed in your life, you're living in tune with God, you're catching his timing, is you stop asking God, what am I supposed to do? And you start asking God, who am I supposed to be? Think about it this way. Let's use an easy example. Let's say you don't have enough money right now and it's really stressing you out. Um, your savings account is upside down. It's something around 70% of Americans don't have $1,000 in the savings account. So a lot of people don't have as much money as they think they need to have. Well, our tendency is to ask, well, God, what am I supposed to do? <laughs> but friends, what if God's speed and his timing in your life is not so much to give you things to do as it is to form you into who you are supposed to be? God, in the midst of this, who am I supposed to become? How am I supposed to live? <laughs> friends, the way you learn to live is you become who you were meant to be. I know that sounds counterintuitive, but um, consider it this way. Uh, Jennifer Roberts is a professor at Harvard University. Uh, she's a professor of fine arts, which is super cool, right? <laughs> Jennifer Roberts, uh, excuse me, Dr. Roberts, teaching at Harvard has found that her college students, her incoming college students, can't understand art because they think that just because they see a piece of art that they immediately understand everything about it. And so what Jennifer Roberts has done is she now forces her incoming freshmen as they study art to find any piece of art that they appreciate, any piece of art, and they have to go somewhere in Boston and physically, physically stand in front of it for three hours silently, <laughs> doing nothing but staring at a painting for three hours. And uh, as, as Dr. Roberts is explaining this, she says it this way. She says, it's commonly assumed that vision is immediate it seems direct, it seems uncomplicated, it seems instantaneous. But what this exercise shows students is that just because you have looked at something doesn't mean you've seen it. And she goes on to explain that profoundly, actually almost all of her students from Harvard, after the first and second hour, finally start to grasp the beauty and the meaning of these paintings. She calls it strategic patience, intentional time management. <laughs> David says it this way, my soul is silence. In verse one, look right there. He says, for God alone, my soul waits in silence. But in Hebrew, he literally says, my soul is silence. I sit silently trusting in God's speed, which is really how you start enjoying God's speed. 
You know, it's not just to understand that God has a certain time for everything. You know, I think we can grasp that. But friends, what you and I are called to do as Christians is actually to enjoy, (laughs) enjoy God's speed in your life. And I think the key that unlocks that door to joy is actually the lost skill of silence. Look at verse one again. He says, you know, for God alone, my soul waits in silence. And then verse five, you may have noticed he repeats that same phrase. Look at verse five. For God alone, oh, my soul, wait in silence. And if you're an especially astute reader of scripture, which you should be, you'll notice that waits and wait are not the same word. In verse one, he's saying, my soul waits. And by verse five, he has to preach to himself, oh, my soul, wait in silence. Profoundly, what's happening is David is having to preach to himself, (laughs) to be silent, to be quiet before God, to trust his timing. I mean, when was the last time? I know this is like so counterintuitive. When was the last time you were three minutes silent before God? You know, last week at GA, Leonce Crump, um, an African-American preacher in Atlanta, uh, was preaching to our general assembly. And uh, he explained it this way. I loved what he said. He said, um, when I pray to God, you know, God has a lot to tell me, uh, but I talk too much. And so when I was praying the other day, you know, God said to him, hey, I would talk if you would just shut up a little bit. You know, I know silence is like so counterintuitive. Um, But friends, why are people flocking to yoga studios and not sanctuaries? Why is the Calm app selling like hundreds of millions of downloads? Could it be that maybe the pace of life we're living is actually not very human? It's not how we were designed to live? I mean, listen to your gut. Silence is like so counterintuitive, but what if it's in silence that you become who you were meant to be? What if it's in silence you actually see the obstacles facing you for what they are? That's what David did. Look at verse three. In silence, David is able to reflect. And in verse three, he says, how long, you enemies, he says, all y'all, how long will all y'all attack a man to batter him like a leaning wall and a tottering fence? They only plan to thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. You see, in silence, David not only sees God for who he is, but he sees the problem for what it truly is. Um, And friends, this is one of the greatest things about Christianity that I could ever explain to you. It does not powder cake and cover over and pretend that the world isn't broken and brutal. (laughs) That the Bible says... Uh, that pain is real, that you have real enemies is so profoundly helpful if you actually listen to it. Um, Christianity is not a religion that says all of your pain is actually a mere illusion. Uh, Friends, what spiritual abuse to tell somebody that? Pain, evil, abuse, they are real. And in silence before God, you may actually see it for what it is. You may be able to call a spade a spade. Uh, Friends, I'm I'm working on my doctorate right now, and I'm having to read from the Desert Fathers and Mothers. And and the Desert Fathers were the original monks, um, and the monks and nuns out living in the desert in Egypt, and uh, they explained silence this way. Uh, They would sit in their cells, um, and they would explain silence. They say, silence is fullness, not emptiness. It is not the absence of anything, but it is the awareness, the awareness of God's own presence. A friend, silence is not the absence, it's the presence of God that allows you to see him for who he is and allows you to see your problems for what they really are. 
There's no sugarcoating this. Look what David says in verse four, his enemies, they have only one goal. That word there only is the same one that he uses when he says, God alone is my help. God alone is my help and my enemies alone only have one goal. He sees with clarity because silence opened the door for the quiet room. Uh, Friends, instead of seeing silence as something to avoid, um, think of silence as a spiritual exercise of confidence, right? Instead of worrying about the absence, think of it as an opportunity to hear from God, to see with clarity, to open up your ears and pull out the earplugs, or at least the earpods, right? Or think about it this way. Um, if you've ever been an athlete and you've ever had an, you know, an opponent that's really annoying, right? After the game, if you beat them, one of the greatest joys is being able to be like, bro, I beat you, right? And you get to brag, right? That's one of our greatest joys in athletics, right, is getting to brag over the opponents we beat. But friends, there's a higher level of enjoyment, right? Which is when you face a truly great opponent and you truly perform fantastic and you don't even say a word. You ever done that? Ever beat somebody and been so profoundly better (laughs) that you didn't need to say anything? You see, silence doesn't always have to be defeat. Silence can also be profoundly confident. That's the silence David has. That's the wise silence of a 60-year-old who has had to learn to catch God's speed since he was 15. This is not a cry of weakness. It's a cry of confidence. Do you hear that? For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence. God has proven himself over and over again, and he will again. And so I'm just going to wait. Let me just finish up and try to give you a reason why you should trust God's speed. Um, I think you understand it, right? Um, I hope you enjoy it, and the key is to unlock the door to silence. But friends, I want to give you a reason for why you should trust it. Notice right there in 62 verse 1, this is David's psalm, right? King David. But friends, who's the ultimate person every psalm points toward? Um, Who prayed this psalm better than anybody? Who at best applied this psalm to his life? Uh, Friends, all of the psalms point to Jesus, the son of David, the king to end all kings, the king that King David was pining and looking forward to. In fact, this is the whole message of the New Testament. This is what Jesus says after the resurrection and beginning with Moses and all the prophets and the psalms, he proclaimed to us all the things that pointed towards him. So friends, look at Psalm 62 and imagine these words on Jesus's mouth. For God alone, my soul waits in silence. He was led before the slaughter, silent like a lamb before its shears. He did not open his mouth, neither was there deceit found in it. For in the ultimate fulfillment of this Psalm was Jesus who shows us what it looks like to be silent in the midst of suffering. Jesus continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Jesus knew profoundly that God was his refuge. And Jesus knew without any sugarcoating who his enemies were. Look at verse three. How long will you attack a man? Uh, Friends, do not miss this. Humanity tried to kill Jesus as soon as he was born and we didn't stop trying to kill him until we succeeded. Matthew 2 Herod tries to kill infant Jesus. After Jesus' first sermon, they tried to throw him off a cliff. Who attacked David? Who ultimately attacked Jesus? 
And their goal was to knock him down. He was like a, a leaning wall, right? And evil people, their only goal is to knock what is already leaning over. And friends, we did just that. We nailed Jesus to the tree. And who profoundly knew what it was like for somebody to bless with their mouth, but inwardly curse you? The Gospels tell us that after Jesus began to preach, many people left him because his sayings were too hard. And even one of his own 12 disciples, Judas, kissed Jesus with his mouth and by doing so betrayed him. Jesus set his hope on God, his Father. And look at verse 8. David turns, in Psalm 62, David turns to God's people and he pleads with them. Six-year-old David says, this is the key. You've got to trust him at all times. Pour out your heart to him. God is our refuge. And Christian, who calls us to trust in God but Jesus himself? In verse 11 and 12, David finishes this and says, once God has spoken, twice have I heard. It's just like steps on a stair. He's just going up and he's proclaiming this great thing that God has both power and he also has profound love and that he will render to every man what he has done. And friends, all of this points to the cross. Because at the cross, Jesus's profound love for us and the power and the holiness of God were all demonstrated. God's righteousness, his wrath against sin was poured out on Christ himself. The punishment that you and I deserve didn't fall on us, it fell on Jesus. And by doing so, he threw open the doors of heaven. Friends, all of this points to Christ. See, when David says, you will render a man according to his work, a Christian, remember this. Remember this always. As R.C. Sproul once said, you are saved by good works. They're just not your own. Christian, you are saved because Jesus endured the cross for you. He despised the shame for you. He was pierced for our transgressions, and upon him was the punishment that brought us peace. And God has rendered him our salvation. God has given him the due of his reward. Friends, why should you trust God's timing? Friends, why should you trust God's timing? Because the gospel is true. Because the gospel is true. Jesus had to trust God's timing. It didn't sugarcoat anything. If anything, it made hardship come to the surface. But the gospel is true, and that's why you trust God's timing. It's not some naive hope that things are going to work out. It's not some naive belief that somehow you're going to be able to make sense of everything that's ever happened to you. You're not. The reason you trust God is because of the gospel. Think about it this way. When trying to explain the gospel to us, Paul says these words, but you may have never actually thought about them before. For while we were still weak, at the right time. Christ died for the ungodly. Friends, do you catch that? At the right time, while we were weak, Christ died for the ungodly. We trust God's timing because in God's timing, Christ has saved us and offered us salvation. Galatians says it this way, when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the curse that we might receive adoption as the sons and daughters of God when the time had come. Friends, why should you embrace God's speed? Why should you trust his timing? 
Um, it's not because you're going to explain everything hard that ever happened to you. Uh, it's, it's not because you're going to be able to explain everything that's ever happened. Uh, friends, you trust God's timing because you trust that at the right time, Jesus died for you. And if he can trust God through that, we can trust him through anything. Uh, friends, that's an invitation. Let's pray. Father, this morning we know that many of us uh, are facing difficulty. Uh, Father, we know that many of us are impatient. We're looking for the next phase of life, the next thing, the next freedom. Uh, But Father, would we focus less on what we are going to do and more on who we are meant to be? Uh, Father, would we become patient people? Uh, Father, would we be people that are comfortable in silence, knowing that you have earned the victory on our behalf? And Father, would we trust your timing even as Jesus did for us. Lord, we love you. Have mercy. Amen.